Get ready to explore faith, doubt, and all that's in between. Welcome to Doubting It with Charlotte Pence Bond. Well, hello there, everybody, and welcome back to the Doubting It podcast with me, Charlotte Pence Bond. I'm really uh, looking forward to introducing a really interesting person to you all today. His name is Dr. Kurt Thompson. Um, he's an author. Um, he's a psychiatrist. He's really um, does does a lot of incredible things, really in the space of interpersonal neurobiology, which is kind of a long uh, phrase. But he basically talks a lot about and writes a lot about how this this interpersonal neurobiology can also be applied to doctrines of the Christian faith and we how we can understand um, kind of our past and our our dealings with guilt or shame and then take those realities and kind of turn them over to Christ and follow Christ and just seek redemption and healing through communities and um, through relationship with Jesus. And it's just really cool to have him on the podcast today. I was I was introduced to him, I guess, through reading his book, um, which is called The Soul of Shame. Um, he actually has another book, too, that's called Anatomy of the Soul. Um, but his most recent one is called The Soul of Shame. It's it's really, uh, really interesting. And I actually read it earlier this year at the recommendation of a pastor. And it's really interesting. I really recommend it to anybody, really, no matter what you're going through. It just kind of lays out how our brains work in regards to kind of internalizing stories about ourselves that we continue to tell ourselves throughout our lives. And so Dr. Thompson's idea is that, you know, these things kind of start early on in our lives, usually in our first families. Um, things happen that maybe make us internalize shame or feel kind of insecure um, is another way to put it, I would say. And then that kind of manifests over time into how we view ourselves and the stories that we tell. And actually the line of the kind of second line of his book, the title of his book is retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. And so if you are interested in doing that, in figuring out kind of why you act the way that you do, what makes you tick, I think that it's a really, really helpful book. And when I was preparing for this podcast interview, I reread the last couple chapters, um, especially, and really dug into them again. And it was very helpful having read that, you know, you know, nine months ago to be able to revisit it. I think it's a book you can definitely revisit uh, throughout your life. So I recommend it for sure. And it, again, it's, it's just a way to understand not only why you respond to things the way that you do, but why other people respond to things the way that they do. And, you know, there's usually more going on in relationships with people and in arguments or fights or disagreements or even when you're getting along. There's usually another reason underlying that. And so I think that I think that that's really important to, to understand. You know, we might get upset at our friend about something but we're actually not really upset about that. We're upset about something else, you know, because maybe they said something to us that was totally innocent, but it reinforced some lie we believe about ourselves that, you know, I'm ugly or I'm weird or people don't like being around me. And so it hurts a lot deeper than it might have if we had understood that about ourselves or if we kind of worked through that. And again, we, we talk about 
a lot of this on the podcast and um, kind of what it means for our society today, actually, because he has some interesting thoughts about cultural events and how um, we can understand um, our sinful natures and the shame that we that we kind of incorporate into our lives and how we can move beyond that as Christians. Um, so I hope that you enjoy this interview. Well, welcome to Dr. Kurt Thompson. Thank you so much for coming on. It's great to have you. Charlotte, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm really excited to have you on today because we connected after kind of the podcast episodes were starting to be released. But I was really excited because I had read your book earlier this year. Um, My husband and I read The Soul of Shame together. Uh, Our pastor recommended it to us. And it just really, really resonated with me at the time. And so when I started doing these podcast uh, interviews, I realized that you would be perfect um, to have on the show. <laughs> so this is great. And I really think that it has a lot of, of really important things to say for sure. Mm. Can you start off first and tell us a little bit about your just personal faith journey and kind of what led you up to this point, I guess? Yeah. So I grew up in a home and I, I think it's it's fair to say that, uh, you know, we all, uh, you know, no matter where we are on our faith journey, that's all part of this bigger story that you know, each one of us finds ourselves in the middle of. And um, so my story was one in which I was reared in a in an evangelical Quaker tradition. So if you can get those two words together in your head. Mm-hmm. And I had probably my first really memorable experience of encountering Jesus, I think, uh, when I was about 13. But not long after that, uh, literally within months uh, entered into uh, a period of uh, what was n- nothing short of a bit of an existential crisis for me that lasted for probably the better part of 20 years. Wow. And so, you know, there there was lots of waxing and waning in my trying to come to terms with mm-hmm. uh, what it means to have a relationship with God, uh, what that looks like in the context of community. And also over the course of that time, um, entering into medical school and uh, eventually landing in psychiatry, trying to, at the same time, was, was trying to make sense of how all this fits, given what I was trained and learning to, learning how to think about how the human mind works and what, mm-hmm. you know, what it means for us to uh, be fully human as we look at it from, you know, different angles, not just from the angle of faith, but from the angle of science, the angle of physiology and the angle of of psychology and all those different things. And I would say that this course of crisis, if you will, uh, that, that lasted for such a long time, as it turned out, I think was far less about faith itself and far more about uh, my own kind of relational development and uh, working through my own story of, and we, I use this word technically, my own story of trauma and the healing of that mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and how that uh, journey even continues to this day. Mm-hmm. So that gives you a little bit of an idea about. I feel like that's so true that, that things really do start from when we're young and this book, your book, The Soul of Shame does totally walk you through that. Um, and it's really, really helpful to understand, but also to understand in a Christian context too, kind of to understand where everything kind of starts out, I guess, um, Mm -hmm. and a lot of these insecurities that we can really carry with us for our entire lives if we don't realize it. Right, right, exactly. Well, can you tell us a little bit about the book and just, I guess, what inspired you to kind of write it at this point 
in your career? Yeah. Well, I think there there was a period of growth even after I was done with formal training in medical school and residency mm-hmm. and was in practice for close to 15 years when I had my first encounter with the emerging field of what we call interpersonal neurobiology. Mm-hmm. And that led eventually to uh, my writing the first book I did, which is called Anatomy of the Soul, which l- really looks at this intersection of neuroscience and how the brain and relationships come together in the context of Christian spiritual formation. So what does it mean for us to think about the brain and relationships and following Jesus? What does that mean when we put those things together? And it was even before that book was completed that I began to see that so much of what we are trying to do in walking people into places of flourishing Mm-hmm. is really uh, a journey in which we're having to address the fundamental element of shame and the way and the place that shame, the role that it plays and the mechanics of how it plays its role, not just internally for each of us as individuals, uh, but even more so in terms of how it affects the way relationships work and extending that then on to communities, to society. And so we would see then how it is that not just the science and mechanics of shame, how that operates literally in my brain and between you and me, but also how it is that so often that when we read in the biblical narrative about questions of sin, whether that's sin in general or the sin of particular people, how it is that so often shame is associated with that, literally quite in the language of of the text itself. Mm -hmm. And we come to find out that from just a neurobiological perspective, whenever we're talking about the experience of brokenness, shame is really always part of the game. It's always in play. And so part of what it means for us to heal, part of what it means for us to be regenerated and redeemed and recommissioned and to imagine what it means to live into the new heaven and new earth, to have our minds renewed, transformed as St. Paul would talk about, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. At some point, is always, we're always going to have to be dealing with the question, where is evil trying to use shame to disintegrate the function of my mind while simultaneously wanting to disintegrate the relationship between you and me? Mm. And therefore, by extension, disintegrate the relationships of our society as a whole. Mm-hmm. And along the way, and this this is the other thing that I try to point out in, in this this book that's forthcoming in the in the coming summer on beauty. Uh, I'm I'm really inviting the readers to to recognize that evil's intention in using shame is not just to make us feel bad. It's not just to get us to behave badly. It is an attempt for it to prevent us from creating in the way we are made to create. Mm. It is an attempt to devour beauty. It's an attempt to keep us from both creating beauty and becoming beauty on the way to creating that with others, in particular with whom I have often great difference. Mm -hmm. And so there are lots of ways in which shame is used, again, not just to make us feel bad, but to disable us from becoming the full human beings that God intends for us to be. Yeah, that's so interesting how it really relates to so many different areas of our lives, I think, um, and places that we can't, we don't necessarily even realize. And I feel like when I read the book, I I felt almost relieved, I guess, in a way mm. that there's something going on 
that. And I didn't even read it for like a particular reason. It was just re- mm. recommended to me. And it does help you to dig in to kind of see why am I reacting that way? You know, and mm. it kind of almost not that it lets you off the hook for your reactions, but it helps you understand it a little bit and realize there might be something totally out of your control that is, you know, affecting you in a way you don't realize. Well, I think like anything, it's it's really helpful to understand the mechanics of how things work about anything, mm-hmm. right? I need to yeah. know the mechanics of how to change a tire in my car. Right. Um, I, it's not just enough for me to know, oh, gosh, I have a tire. A tire could blow, and it would be good to know how to change that, like as uh-huh. an abstract idea. Like I, I need to know how to change it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the beautiful things about interpersonal neurobiology, about the way neuroscience is revealing things to us, it's giving us greater insight into mechanics. Mm -hmm. It's important to remember that science, neuroscience in particular, doesn't in and of itself tell us anything about what is good or bad in the world. It doesn't tell us anything about what we should do, what we shouldn't do. It doesn't tell us anything about ethics. It doesn't tell us anything about beauty in and of itself. Science just enables us to see what the mechanics are of how things work. But it doesn't tell us why the thing was made and what its purpose is in the first place. And so it's really helpful for us to have a sense of the mechanics because then when we understand how to then go about entering into the healing process, we learn that, for instance, it's not really going to be enough just to say to someone, oh, you don't need to be ashamed about that. As if mm-hmm. just telling you, you don't need to be ashamed is commensurate with, well, that'll be fine. And Charlotte will hear that. And then she'll be fine. Yeah. It's going to be important for us to understand what really is necessary for shame to be healed in order for us to be recommissioned and redeemed to go on to create new things that we never even imagined that we could create mm-hmm. before our shame was encountered more specifically and explicitly. Right. And this, I think this does, I think it ties into the theme about doubt that we kind of have on this podcast of, you know, that you start kind of allowing things to kind of seep into your mind maybe and have experiences that kind of cause you to start doubting your faith. Um, How would you say that, I guess, shame and doubt, do you see them going together? Mm -hmm. Do you see one kind of leading to another ever? Well, you know, I I think it's it's, it's a great question, Charlotte. And I have a couple of responses to that. One Mm -hmm is uh, there's a, a well-known, a highly regarded philosopher of science by the name of Michael Polanyi. I don't know if you're familiar with that name or not, but he's written a number of different pieces that have been really helpful for me. And one of the things that Polanyi points out is that, and, and, and he, he spent many years as a chemist, as a scientific researcher in chemistry. And so he knows his stuff as a researcher in addition to writing as a philosopher. And one of the things that he points out is that Uh, You know, it's often pointed out, it's often cited that doubt is one of the main features of how scientific progress is made, right? We have an understanding of how the world works, and then somebody starts to doubt that the way we conventionally talk about, you know, planetary interchanges with the sun and the earth, somebody doubts that that works. And Polanyi points out that what we often call doubt, I'm doubting this system, I'm doubting faith, I'm doubting whatever it is that I'm doubting. Polanyi points out rightly that anytime that I'm doubting any one thing, I'm already actually putting my faith in something else. Mm, You see, it's actually important to know that human beings are incapable 
of functioning apart from what we would call faith. We are unable to function apart from what we would call the act of trust. Mm. And for me to doubt one thing means that I am simultaneously now trusting something else and giving something else greater authority than what that thing is that I, that I w- was trusting up until 10 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. So it's important to know that anytime people are wondering uh, it, it, and saying like, I'm doubting my faith, I'm doubting this or that, the next question that we must ask is, oh, okay, what are you instead trusting and giving more authority to at, in, in this very moment? Most people aren't aware that that's even happening, that they're doing that. But that's a crucial and important thing because of, of the following thing. So not only do we have to be aware that doubt is just another side of how we're trusting something else, mm-hmm. it's equally true that doubt usually is echoing some kind of trauma that we've had. Mm-hmm. Right. So when I'm doubting my faith, I would have to say, and in, in, in the work that I do as a psychiatrist, we see a lot of people who who are you know believers, but who are in really, really painfully difficult places. And those painful and difficult places are often leading people to question their faith, doubt, where is God, any number of different ways in which that operates. Mm-hmm. And what we come to find out is that my what I might call my doubt in God is often really having to do with some kind of trauma relationally that has taken place for me. Mm-hmm. It may have happened in my own life with my own parents or friendships. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, for those of us who are paying attention to things like epigenetics, right? This notion that things can happen generationally, one and two generations away from us, before us, that can trickle mm-hmm. down even genetically to us. And we are actually carrying, as we, as the writers of the Old Testament say, to the third and fourth generation, we carry the trauma of our own family lives. It's really important for us to recognize then that when I'm doubting faith, what my mind is probably trying to do is it's trying to get my attention about a trauma that is asking for healing mm-hmm. in some way, shape, or form. And so whenever we encounter folks, whenever I encounter folks in the, in the office uh, who are really wrestling with these kinds of things, our conversation eventually, and often pretty quickly, moves out of the realm explicitly of faith and into the realm of our embodied real relationships that we really have in real time and space and really asking some pointed questions about, well, what does it mean for you to trust anybody, let alone trust that God is real Mm. or true or faithful? What does it mean for you to trust your friends? What does it mean for you to trust your parents? Where are the unhealed wounds that you walk around with? And the reason that shame then is linked to doubt in this way is that Trauma peddles in shame. Mm, Shame is one of the primary neurobiological, neurophysiological actions with which trauma actually does its work. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to talk about shame, we're eventually going to talk about trauma. We're going to talk about what have been those experiences in which we have felt, A, overwhelmed, and B, powerless to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. That's been my perception. When we start to talk about that, we begin to get a better sense of how it is that my doubt is connected to shame and how my doubt, particularly about faith or faith matters, is often far more about things that are in my real embodied life 
where unfinished painful business lies. And it becomes far easier for me to package and wrap that in the language of faith, far easier for me to doubt God than it is for me to go have a confrontational conversation with my parents who I think are not going to listen to me. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in this sense, my doubt about faith can sometimes end up being something that actually has very little to do with faith, but I go there as a way to protect myself from having to address the problems where the problems really exist. Yeah, wow, that's fascinating. And it makes it makes a ton of sense that usually, especially with doubt, I feel like when we're doubting our faith, it does come from possibly doubting a person, maybe, but it's also a, you know, it is a response usually for a lot of people to something traumatic happening. We're going to take a quick break and we will be back to talk to Dr. Thompson a lot more in a second. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app. Well, welcome back to the Doubting It podcast. Um, we have Dr. Thompson on the show today. I also wanted to ask you about the difference. You write in the book about the difference between shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to explain that to our listeners because I think it's a really interesting process when you start to kind of go through and think of the things, you know, that have happened in your life that have led to these insecurities or these shames that that affect how you, you know, react or your relationships possibly. What's that difference between shame and guilt and how that relates to, you know, a, a faith experience, a religious belief too? Right. One of the things that we see pretty quickly developmentally and neuroscientifically is that What we describe as shame, the experience that we have that we would give the name shame to, is an experience that we human beings can encounter as early as 15 to 18 months of age. This neurophysiologic experience in which I have the sense that there's something deeply wrong and that by the time I'm actually able to put cognitive language to it, it comes out as something like there's something wrong with me, like I'm bad. Now, when you're 15 to 18 months of age, you don't necessarily have the words for this. You're just having the experience and you're already constructing coping strategies for this. Mm-hmm. Coping strategies that don't involve my capacity to think rationally, but that are just ways in which my body is responding to this and my emotional regulatory processes are responding to this. But it comes early in the game developmentally. What we would call that which people experience that we call guilt doesn't begin to emerge in children until they're somewhere between the ages of about three and five years of age. Mm -hmm. And the thing that we call guilt, uh, again, this is a word that represents a constellation of relational and neurocognitive kind of events that are taking place. So the thing I call guilt is the thing that overcomes me when, if I've done something that I think is wrong, there are a number of things that are true about this. A, that I am even aware that something is what we might call wrong requires the development of my prefrontal cortex. I have to have a part of my brain develop that gives me the sense that there is something that I should be doing and I'm not doing that correctly, doing that wrong. That's one part of it. Another part of it is that I'm aware that this thing that is wrong 
has implications between me and another person. I'm wrong and I'm going to be in trouble with my parents or my teacher or my coach or my or whoever this is. There's a certain sense in which this thing that I've done now has implications, not just having me feeling bad, like Shane does, I'm bad, but it has this sense that it has now like separated me relationally from someone else. And once again, in order for me to even have that experience and be aware of that, I need the prefrontal cortex of my brain to have become more mature than it needs to be when I feel shame when I'm just two years of age. Mm -hmm. Why is this important? One of the more important details of the research that separates out guilt from shame is almost 100% with consistency. When a child or an adult has the experience of what we call guilt, they will almost almost every time, they will want to behave in a way that repairs the relationship where the guilt exists as quickly as they can. So if I do something for which I feel guilt, if I've hurt your feelings, if I've done something that has upset you, upset us, I'm going to want to come to you as quickly as I can and say, Charlotte, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Will you please forgive me? I want to know that you will forgive me and that we can be okay because there is a part of me that recognizes I've done something wrong. I've done something bad and that there's something between us that can repair that. And you can say, that's okay. We're good. And I can feel better about that. That's what we call guilt. That when we feel guilt, guilt moves us toward one another. Shame, on the other hand, does not do this. Shame actively pushes me away from you. When I feel shame, I don't want you to look at me. I don't want to look at you looking at me because the very act of doing so, create. I anticipate feeling bad. Mm-hmm. With guilt, I want you to look at me because I anticipate that the guilt will be resolved. With mm-hmm. shame, I don't sense this. In fact, two important features of this. One is that anytime we feel guilt, if you know, if you, if you have an experience where you've done something and you feel guilty about it and you go to your friend and you ask for forgiveness and they, and they say, we're, we're good. And two days later, you're thinking about it and you still feel bad. And you might say, I still feel guilty. No, that's shame. Mm. That's the residue of shame that is still sticking around. And this is why it's crucially important for us to remember that We can be forgiven of guilt and we can be okay with that pretty quickly. Shame lasts a long time and I do not turn to you in my shame. You're going to have to come find me. Again, when it comes to us being God followers, this is why the biblical narrative makes so much sense to me in that God is the one who comes to find us in our shame. We're not going to go to God because I don't want to see him seeing me. Yeah. And this is why then, when seen through the lens of Easter, Good Friday makes so much sense. That Good Friday is God saying to us that he is willing to literally, in an embodied way, be with us in our shame and not leave us there. That crucifixion, As we know, crucifixion wasn't just a a way to torture somebody to death. It was a way to humiliate the culture in which it was happening. Mm -hmm. And God is saying, I am willing to be in the shame, the worst shame that human beings can come up with 
I'm willing to be in that, naked, beaten, hung on a tree, up close and personal, but I'm not going to leave you there. Right. That with, with Easter, as in all healing processes of shame, with Easter, God is saying, I'm going to be in the room with you and I'm not leaving until you're willing to look at me looking at you. Mm. Looking at you, looking at me, and see you seeing me love you with my eyesight, love you with my voice, even as you are in your place of greatest shame, in mm. order to give your mind and your brain a completely different and completely unexpected and completely surprising experience of grace and love and mercy in the very last place you would ever expect it. As Paul writes, like, you know, we wouldn't be surprised if somebody would want to be with us and care for us if we had done all kinds of wonderful things for them. Mm-hmm. We, you know, if, if we're successful, if we're uh, beautiful, if we're all these kinds of wonderful things, people are more than happy to be with us. Mm-hmm. But we don't expect people will want to be with us when we are revealing the things about ourselves that we hate the most. Right. But this is exactly what the gospel does. And the gospel then doesn't just leave us in that place. And it doesn't just bring us back to baseline. Remember, God is not healing us just to keep us from feeling bad. God wants to go to the very places where we are most shamed in order for the most glorious beauty to emerge out of the very places where we would be least able to imagine it ever happening. Yeah, it's so true. And so when you talk to people about how to deal with shame, what's kind of the strategy? I mean, other than you know, reading your book, which people should definitely <laughs> do. And my husband said he wanted me to tell you he's rereading it right now, the ending. Mm-hmm. So great. And it's really good to just go back to you and if you've read it before. But I, I think that, you know, it's it can be daunting to think, okay, I have I have these things that lead to shame. Mm-hmm. What do I do now? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you tell people? Right. Well, the first thing I would say is that that it feels daunting in and of itself is not something for which to be ashamed, but we will be mm-hmm. tempted to be. Right. Yeah. I, it's like, it's, it's not like just like, well, I mm-hmm. feel ashamed. It's like, I feel ashamed and I feel ashamed of my shame because yes. this is how shame works. <laughs> right. And so right. I, I just figure like there's, you know, thanks for the, you know, writing the book. I'm screwed. Right. There's no, there's no <laughs> way. I don't, I don't see any way. I don't see any way out of this. So there are, mm-hmm. so, so the first thing to say is that, it's, it's important for people to know that this really is hard work. It's not easy. And we need to be told it's not easy, but we need to be told that not with the voice of pessimism. Mm-hmm. We need to be told that so that we know that when we're in the middle of hard work, others are going to be with us, reminding us that the hard work is the kind of work that Michelangelo would have to put in if he's going to paint the Sistine Chapel. Mm -hmm. The hard work is the kind of hard work that you're going to put in if you're going to create a feast for Thanksgiving. The hard work is the kind of hard work that takes place when a mother labors and gives birth to a newborn. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's the hard work of marriage. It's the hard work of building a company. It's the hard work mm-hmm. of all kinds of things. That those things that are the most beautiful in the world, while being the most durable in the world, are the things that take the longest to create. The Grand Canyon didn't happen overnight. Right. Yeah. These things take a long time to emerge. So that's just the first thing. It's hard and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Because what we're doing is creating beauty. Yeah. That's number one. Number two, it requires courage to tell our story. One of the sections of, of the book is devoted to this question of what does it mean for us to be storytellers as human beings? And recognizing that shame isn't just this abstract thing that you know, happens to happen to be in the universe, but it is a thing that actually is given meaning and has power in the context of whatever story you believe you're living in. And so we have to ask that question, what is the story that I think that I'm living in? Right? I, I'm reminded of a, one of my patients who, when I first met him, he came to see me because he was extraordinarily anxious, despite the fact that when you looked at his life, you didn't really easily see why he should be like successful mm-hmm. in all domains of life. Why was this person anxious? And as we spoke, I asked him, you know, what was it like for you to you know, tell me a little bit about your childhood. And as you know, his standard answer is, well, I grew up in a loving Christian home, which often for many of us, we know that's kind of code for, well, life sucked, but you're just not allowed to talk about it. Hmm. And so when we got further into this, well, I'm asking questions about like, well, who was in charge of discipline and what was like living with your siblings? You come to find out that although he's told the story over the course of his lifetime, I grew up in a loving Christian home. It turns out that there was a lot of emotional and physical brutality that took place in the wall, you know, within the walls of his home. Mm. Well, but he's telling a different story. He's having to work to protect his heart by saying to himself and to his friends, no, I grew up in a loving Christian home, mm-hmm. but that's not the home that he actually grew up in. And so part of the challenge is finding a way to tell our story more truly. And we need people who will listen to us. So number one, it's hard to do this but it's good to do this. Number two, who are the people to whom you're going to tell your story? Name, one or two people. We have to find one or two people and we're going to ask them, may I tell you my story and give yourself 30 to 45 minutes to tell them your whole story. We might be people though who are going to be curious and ask, who are the people who I think it would be good for them to tell me their story and I want to ask them to tell me. So in the same way that the gospel comes to find us, we are also going to find others to invite them to tell us their story. It's important to recognize that shame cannot be healed in isolation. It cannot be healed in isolation. And so for your listeners, I would say, gosh, it would be important for us to do some work with journaling. You know, we do some, we, we, we talk about writing your autobiography, taking 30 minutes and write about the first decade of your life, paying attention to the emotional saliently, those emotionally salient elements of your life. And then you take 30 more minutes and you write about the second decade and the third and the fourth and so forth. But then I want you to read that to somebody. I want you to give them the opportunity to ask you questions. Mm -hmm. In the book, we walk through the first two to three verses of the 12th chapter of Hebrews. Mm -hmm. And there is, I think, built into that a bit of an algorithm, a bit of a progression of what it means for us to, first of all, seek out 
our shame and our trauma, not to avoid it. We want to go find it because we want to find out where are the abscesses in my body that need to be lanced and opened in order for Mm -hmm. others to be able to say, gosh, this is really difficult. And Jesus, and we are in this space with you transforming this. We want you to tell a different story. We want you to tell a story of redemption about those very places in your heart where shame has been living for all these years. We said earlier that shame tends to have me wanting to not look at it. And I'd like for you to just say, you know, Kurt, all that shame stuff, like you're just fine. You're going to be great. No worries. And evil would love nothing more than for me to avoid that stuff and just keep going as if it didn't ever happen. Mm -hmm. But my brain, it remembers these things. It's whole, it's, it's burning energy, having to contain and regulate this stuff. When we allow our stories to be told to others in a way in which compassion is the response and recommissioning to create goodness and beauty is the response, it literally changes my neural structures such that I'm no longer committing energy in my brain to contain and hide those emotional neurophysiologic felt sense of shame. I'm not doing that anymore. That energy is now made available for me to create the next new artifact of beauty that God longs for me to create with those, often with those with whom I have great difference. And so recognizing that this journey is not easy and having people be with us on it, telling our stories more truly, ensuring that we are not hiding away from those things that represent Mm -hmm. our shame, but also remembering that the telling of my story is a thing that I do over and over and over again. This is not a thing where I have a conversation with you about a particular thing of my life that I feel ashamed of, and you say, Kurt, I really get that, and then I never have to talk about it again. Right. Mm -hmm. In the same way that Jesus comes to Peter multiple times on the beach in John 21 asking, do you love me, over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. my guess is that this would have been a story and a question that Peter would have been contending with until he was dead. Recognizing And here's the thing, recognizing that Jesus is not worried or impatient with us, that somehow we have all of our shame stuff cleaned up perfectly. The purpose of life is not to have everything perfect. The purpose of life is to be living into the lives, practicing being in the lives that Jesus is calling us to be in with others so that we and they together may be agents of healing and recommissioning of this shame in order for us to go on to create beauty that we otherwise wouldn't be able to realize. Yeah, that's so true. And you talk a lot about vulnerability in the book too, how vulnerability is just extremely important just to be transparent. And I do notice even now it helps to understand how where other people are coming from, I think too. It kind of goes both ways once you understand that there are things that can lead to you having shame, reacting certain ways mm-hmm. um, to events. You also start to extend that grace to other people and realize there might be sure. something they don't even know is going on mm. um, underneath mm. the surface. Um, and that's why they're acting this way. Um, right. right. My last question is kind of about the culture and how shame tends to can seep into our culture a little bit. And you recently wrote about the shame and racism and the relationship between the two. And I know it's probably mm-hmm. way longer, but I, I'm interested in what you think um, is in the culture and how shame impacts it, but also what, we can do as individuals to to kind of combat that. 
Well, that's a great question, Charlotte. And I, I, I would I would want to kind of piggyback off of the comments that you just made about vulnerability. And that mm-hmm. is, you know, if we look at the Genesis account at the end of chapter two, we read that the man and his wife were naked and unashamed, that they stand on the precipice of great creativity. And you have three things that are true, at least three things that are true about that comment. One is that you've got a male and a female. You've got differentiated persons. We have right? right? So you've got we and when when it comes to anything in our world, it's easy for us to want to stay with those people with whom I am just exactly like you. As long as I'm just like you, I think that's how we can create the best world. I'm doing it with people. You know, I tell people, you know, when I married my wife Phyllis, it turned out later I, I discovered I actually didn't really want to marry my wife Phyllis, who I wanted to marry was the woman who looked like my wife, but who was really curt in her body. I really wanted someone who's just like me, who thinks like me, thinks everything I think is funny. Like, is like I wanted to marry me, but I wanted uh-huh. to look like her. And uh-huh. evil will use shame, first of all, to highlight that my difference with you is also to be understood as dangerous. Difference equals danger. This is what shame does. But we read that the man and the woman, like creativity, necessarily takes place within the context of people who are differentiated from one another. So we write this large in our culture, and we're talking not just about males and females. We're talking about blacks and whites. We're talking about rich and poor. We're talking about a whole range of different ways in which there is opportunity for great creativity. But shame will want to separate us along those differentiating differentiating lines. The second thing that we read, the male and the female, they were naked. They were vulnerable. That great creativity takes place necessarily in the context of vulnerability. Human beings don't mm. decide whether or not we're going to be vulnerable or not. Like, no, like we are vulnerable. We wear clothes. We're the only animals on the planet that get dressed up. We dress up other animals. That's yeah. weird. But like, like we, we put clothes <laughs> on because we are vulnerable. We are vulnerable creatures. The question is, to what degree at mm. any given time am I going to like live in this context of vulnerability and in the absence of shame, the man and the wife mm-hmm. were naked and they were unashamed. And so mm-hmm. what shame will want to do is to highlight in the culture our differences and create within me my sense that difference is danger. And we often, in our, in our work, we often ask the question, what is it that we want? What do we want? Right. It's, it's not hard for us to name. We're, we are a pathologizing people. It's easy for us to name what the problem is. This is the problem that needs to be solved or they are the problem that needs to be solved. That's a very different question that uses dominantly different parts of the brain, left hemispheric problem, parts of the brain. than the part of the brain that asks the question, what do we want to create? What do we want to create? Now, my attention will easily and quickly and uh, repeatedly want to be drawn to danger, want to be drawn to what's wrong with this, want to be drawn to what's the problem, as opposed Mm -hmm. to being drawn to what do I want to create? What do I want to make? To make something with someone else, if I'm going to make something with you, it means that there's something that you have that I don't have, which means I need Mm -hmm. you. I am vulnerable I I am not able to make the thing I want to make unless you are with me in the room. Your very presence and difference highlights my vulnerability, 
but also accentuates the possibility of creating beauty and goodness. Mm-hmm. And so here we are having this conversation two days after the election. Yeah. And with all of our, you know, pandemic, racial, economic, political, all these things kind of being in, you know, sharp relief. Mm-hmm. And I would want to invite everybody to be curious about and asking the question, what is it, what is it that we want to create together? What is mm-hmm. it that we want to create together? As opposed to what is the problem that I think that I need to solve? And how does that problem show up embodied in the other person who is different than me? Yeah. That only reinforces and gives shame and opportunity to strengthen itself, not just between me and somebody else, but also within me. And that is so antithetical mm-hmm. to what the gospel is about in which Jesus is coming and saying, I don't want shame to have not only a beachhead, I don't want it to have a foothold. I don't want it to have a fingertip hold on the Mm -hmm. world that I'm making and the new heaven and new earth that is surely coming. And so, uh, you know, my hope for us is that we continue to be mindful of how when we are doing the hard work, we said this is hard, when we do this hard work of regeneration and the healing of shame interpersonally, we give ourselves the opportunity to extend that into the institutional places where shame has taken up refuge and is trying to do its work at disintegrating and dismantling who we are. Mm-hmm. And my hope for our listeners is that we can see that we serve a God of hope and a God who wants to create beauty in the very places where we would least expect it to be emerging. No, that's so true. And, you know, we as human beings, were imperfect people. Um, and I think that that shame that you know about yourself, you know, obviously, as you're saying, you know, leads to thinking negatively about others instead of, like you said, you know, recognizing that in myself and recognizing that, you know, I am a flawed person and I need somebody else. And ultimately I need Christ mm-hmm. to, to guide me. But, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. but thank you so much for, um, for joining the show today. This was extremely enlightening to me and helpful to me on a personal level, but just, Mm. I hope that people uh, listening get, get a lot out of it, which I think they will. So thank you so much. Charlotte, it has been a pleasure. And again, um, I'm, you're just very kind and gracious to have invited me to be part of it. It's uh, been a real pleasure to be here. A huge thank you to Dr. Thompson again for coming on the podcast. Um, I learned a lot just from talking to him and kind of getting his perspective on this. He does a lot of great stuff too. He He's also founded the Being Known LLC, which is um, a place that educates and trains leaders on this interpersonal neurobiology idea and Christian spiritual formation. So kind of how they both go together, um, which is really interesting. So he's kind of really taken this concept, I think, and really applied it in interesting ways to our lives. And I think it just helps. It always helps to understand what's going on in your brain a little bit better and to do so within the Christian context because a lot of times I feel like I read things about psychiatry or, um, you know, or I'll like go, I'll talk to a therapist. And sometimes I feel like I'm not getting as much maybe out of it sometimes because not that I'm getting less, but, but that I'm getting something different if they are not coming at it from a Christian perspective. And that's not to say that, you know, all therapists have to be Christian at all. But I think that you can kind of have both where you can have like a counselor perspective 
um, who is a Christian maybe, and then also a therapist who is not coming at it from a religious standpoint, who's just coming at it from the science. And I think it's cool that Dr. Thompson connects both of those so well. Um, and it's just really helpful for me because as we talked about at the end there, you know, you can kind of start to be like, okay, I, this stuff is wrong with me, but what am I supposed to do about it? <laughs> and I think that, um, we, we can do something. We can do something. And that's what his book is all about. It's about going into communities. It's about creating things together as a culture. I love how he talked about shame makes us hide, but guilt makes us go to people because we think, okay, I'm going to tell this person and I'm going to feel, feel better. But when I'm sh- shameful, I feel shame about something. It it makes me want to hide from people. And that's the opposite of what we should do. We should still go to our trusted friends and our Christian friends and say, I did this thing. I'm struggling with it. It's a sin. I know, but I I need to tell somebody because I need to move past it. And I also need to be held accountable. But it's also just good to, to work things out. Like he said, just tell your life story to somebody and how you really see it and the things that really happened to you. And you can kind of start to connect the dots of saying, okay, there are reasons why I feel the way that I do about things. And maybe it's com- it was completely out of my control. You know, as a little kid, this happened to me. And you start to connect the dots. That's why I think I think therapy is great. And um, I've gone to therapy before, and I think it's really helpful. And I also think things like this, especially as Christians, where we can start to understand where where Christ kind of can tell, it helps us tell a different story about ourselves, how the story isn't over, um, just because something's happened to us or we act certain ways, that's we don't have to live in in shame and insecurity forever. And I love how he talked about looking for people who are different, right? Like we kind of talk about unifying the country right now. He and I did that podcast um, the week of the election, and and it's it's really um, it's really vital. I think that we see one another right now, and that we seek out people who are different from us. And I think we already, I think honestly, Americans do that a lot. I think that we encounter people all the time who don't agree with us on things because we live in a very diverse society. Um, but just really actively creating things with people who maybe don't agree with you on a political standpoint or a religious standpoint. Um, I think is is always good. It always it always forces us to think differently about how we consider things as well, and um, to understand where that person's coming from on a more personal level. Um, so again, thank you so much to Dr. Thompson for coming on the show. It was just awesome for me to be able to talk to him and share some of this with you guys. And I hope that you check out his book, The Soul of Shame. It's not like it's. I don't think it came out. It might have come out earlier. Um, this year, but it, it's definitely, it's not like an older book or anything. Um, it's definitely um, current kind of for, I think can be really applied to what's going on in our lives right now and in our society. But I just think that it just always is going to be relevant. This this is the kind of book that is literally never going to be something that you can't pick up again. But I do like that it's kind of recent and we can kind of talk about it in that way. Again, his other book is The Anatomy of the Soul. Um, So if you want to check out both of those, and you can also go to his website, KurtThompsonMD.com. Kurt is C-U-R-T, ThompsonMD.com. Thank you so much for joining the show and hope you have a great rest of your week. Thanks for listening to Doubting It with Charlotte Pence Bond on the Edify Podcast Network. 
Tune in next time for another powerful exploration of faith, doubt, and all that's in between. And for more faith-inspiring podcasts, download the Edify podcast app on the Apple and Google Play stores or at edify.app.